0: I am joined by an expert in macro and banking, Patrick Parrot Green, founder of PPG Macro. Patrick, you've been a uh, you know veteran of trading rates in Asia, tr- uh, working in bank treasury departments. Uh, started working on your own, uh, you know, over the past uh, you know close to a decade. Great to have you here. Welcome to Forward Guidance.
1: It's great to be with you. Thanks, Jack.
0: Patrick, I want to start by just showing the audience something that y- was on your radar. Uh, very early uh, in the fall of 2022, last year, you wrote liquidity warning: small U.S. banks uh, for commercial real estate loans and non-bank liquidity, basically showing that base liquidity at smaller U.S. banks had plunged. And you had sent these to your your clients at, at PPG Macro. And as people can see, it circled in red is you sent this on October 5th, and about uh, let's say you know five or six months later we started having all this banking turmoil. So needless to say, this email has aged quite well. What was it that you had seen, you know, in the summer and fall of 2022, that was uh, getting on your radar, getting you a little bit worried. And then yeah, what have you made of the recent fallout?
1: I'm a sort of a bit of a, a geek when it comes to the, the sort of monetary data. So every week religiously, I'll go through the H4 report and the H8 report, the H4 obviously being the Fed's balance sheet report that comes out every Thursday. Oh, late in Thursdays, and the H8, which is about the commercial banks and their assets and liabilities. And obviously, banks' balance sheets are both on assets and liabilities because of everything to do with the pandemic. And in the US, particularly because of fiscal largesse, um, saw these dramatic changes, excess liquidity, yada, 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 very high balances on cash. Um, and deposits, but deposits have been falling consistently. Reserves have been falling consistently since the beginning of last year, and it was basically you get to the point where you just go like loan deposit ratios for big banks were very have generally trended downwards pretty consistently, but small banks um, started to pick up their their lending picked up very quickly, and as we now know, when we talk about Signature and SVB and first um, First Republic or worst Republic, um, and actually I would just one little sideline on that. It, I would say uh, the worst Republic is definitely California or the San Francisco banking district because so many of those problems seem to be centered there. And the funny thing is, there doesn't look like they've got they've gone they've, they've improved over the past sixteen years. When again? so many of the problems were in the San Francisco banking district. So, so there was just little warning signs that their liquidity ratios were dropping. And we've already started, we're, already, we're very clear that commercial real estate was already starting to to suffer. And ever since then, we've seen far more stories, far more sources of woe. Um, you've got big private equity names. And you know I'm not going to talk about, the, I mean, you know, I could talk about the Black Death Star as um, that's how I call it, you know, Blackstone. Um, (laughs) But it's more um, when you've got the likes of Pimco and Brookfield handing back the keys on commercial buildings and just walking away, um, all is not well with the world. And then you have to say question, okay, banks um, are supposedly well-regulated, and supervised. Well, we've just had the Fed do a culpa about that. and We've got a situation where smaller banks, and it's very arbitrary the way the Fed describes it, it's basically anything bar the largest 25 by asset basis. Well, I haven't seen the latest ranking because obviously three of those banks or two banks that are in the top 25 have disappeared, SVB and FRC, and Signature were number 29. Um, so there's, there's a shuffling up, but it's basic it's quite a crude definition, but small small re, small us banks um, are disproportionately exposed to commercial real estate. So while um they only have something like thirty percent of the banking assets, they have seventy percent of the CRE loans. So they're basically stuck with a liquid product. Um, how much of that lending is floating and how much of that is fixed is is hard to say how much of it's hedged. I mean, I can't remember which Fed it was recently put a paper out about the lack of interest rate hedging amongst banks as well. If I'm Citibank or a big bank, uh, basically the top four, uh, the losses on my available for sale portfolio is directly is a direct hit to my capital. Smaller banks, it's not. Hold to maturity isn't. So it's just there as a great big blob. But even at the end of, uh, I think at the end of the fourth quarter, the FDIC said that the unrealized losses of both portfolios of the US banks was was well over six hundred billion dollars. So roughly about a quarter of the cap of the actual capital of the US banking system. So there's lots of little flags out there, and as liquidity was draining, um, big banks were continuing to do well. Um, very high levels of deposits. Yes, they were coming down, but the loan deposit ratios uh, were fine. They also are generally well-managed. They're vastly better managed than they used to be. Um, and um, so I, for example, was working at Citibank in 2007. And we used to joke that the, the term chief risk officer was an oxymoron. So um, they've improved enormously. The problem is small banks have grown rapidly. It's very clear from the Fed's post-mortem that they, while their assets um, exploded, uh, their oversight didn't accordingly. So you double the size of your balance sheet, but did you actually add any more to your risk team? Well, we, yeah. well in fact, in SVB they didn't even have a chief risk officer. So, you know, I mean, we're talking about, so one is that, that sort of, yes, we have expanding because everything, hey, everything's great. everything It's a buy everything. Rates are low we're making loads of money look at our nim but all of a sudden actually you know those those big mortgages that first republic gave are fixed at 3% or wherever they gave them to multi to the billionaires or multimillionaires and all of a sudden well oh we're going to have to we're borrowing at the discount window at 5 so you know and then we end up on the road to bankruptcy uh, and and then the problem is Um, even allowing for deposit insurance, and the great majority of deposits in the US um, and for SMEs, they don't even challenge the 250000 limit. So introducing extending insurance is really just another sop to the elite. If you've got more than $250,000 in your bank account, you should be financially aware enough to understand the risks. I think that's a reasonable approach to take. But the problem is, there is that fear of contagion. I mean, it was just things were getting dicey. And then as, thing, as more and more data came out, so then you could see, actually, that technically, even at the end of 2022, uh, First Republic was already um, in deficit when you added up its valuations of its on on its excuse, on its losses on its loan book and everything else and its rates as well so one of the things i noticed when i was looking through first republic's results because they put the rates of their investments mm-hmm. is actually it turns out during 2022 they were actually selling bonds that were in the money and and so the average rate the yield they were getting actually fell it was it was lower for Q1-23 than it was in Q2-22. Mm. So they basically mean to keep the keep the hamster on the wheel, they'd actually been, oh, wherever we can realise a profit, let's realise a profit. Oh to, oh, to hell with the ones that are in, in loss. We'll just ignore those. Classic. It's like the classic bad gambler.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Patrick, just to ex- explain a few things. So you said fixed versus floating. That's fixed rates. You're, you're, you, when you have a loan, you get 4% every single time versus variable rate, floating rate. Oh, if interest rates go up to 5%, now you're getting 5%. That's key on the asset side, because as we now know, on the liability side, what banks are paying is changing rapidly as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates from zero to 5%. Uh, you also said available for sale, AFS versus held to maturity, uh, HTM. And then NIM is their net interest margin, the spread between what they get on their loans and what they uh, have to pay uh, depositors and, and you know, on, their, on their liabilities. So when you talked about First Republic, the problem was a, a NIM problem. They just were not earning enough on their assets. They made you know mortgages to very wealthy people at. Two and a half percent, three percent, and now they have to. You know, back when they existed, unfortunately, they you know they had to borrow from the uh, Federal Home Loan Bank at five percent. So they have a. You just know, negative- think
1: about you know the value of that loan is just like it's just like the value of the price of a, of a bond, right? So if rates go up, the price goes down. So you know you've got it's not just a nim problem, but if you actually have a mark to market problem. If you're at a liquidation point, then you're just going to realize a huge loss and we bankrupt.
0: Silicon Valley Bank they had that problem in mortgage backed securities they bought all this paper that yielded a low rate and so the the value went down. You wrote today, you know, something smells in in the banking system. I mean, how do you how do you think this plays out and to what degree do you think this crisis seems over? Cuz you can make a case. Oh, you know First Republic fell, but that that was the the last bank to, to fall and, you know, credit quality so far seems good. Yeah, what do you what do you what do you mean? What do you, How do you spell that case? Well, I,
1: for a start, all these things have happened uh, when the economy hasn't been in recession. So there's another element as well. So we so far we've just talked about the prices of fluctuations in the value of securities, NIM, all that sort of stuff. But what we haven't even touched on is the coming hit in delinquencies as well. So that's the other side of it. When the bank, and we're already seeing in things like credit cards that, um, particularly amongst younger demographics, it's the delinquency rates are are already surging, while they're getting away with so far thirty-eight months of forbearance on um, student loans. Surging from very low
0: levels, though, right? It's like if if delinquency rate is ten basis points and it goes to twenty basis points, the delinquency rate has doubled, but it's still not high.
1: Oh, no, no, no. I mean, some of the stuff now, and you're obviously seeing it on Twitter today, when we're back to sort of 2019 levels of delinquency, on subprime, we're back on subprime credit cards. Uh, we're back. We're actually at higher levels of delinquency than we were in 2019. So we've got these other kickers, you know, people, income growth is slowing. Excess savings have largely disappeared. San Fran Fed did an economic letter on, on Monday, highlighting that um excess savings were down to 500 billion the problem is those excess savings are really just left with the rich so they're not you know they're not going to consume those so much and actually if you just deflated it as well the number's even less so if you think about it excess savings were two trillion and we're down to 500 so they've effectively because they have this huge boost largely from uncle sam um that um, that's roughly six percent of GDP, so no wonder consumption has remained reasonably strong. But now that's that process is clearly coming to an end. So as growth starts to to slip, and a lot of our high frequency measures, I you know I'm a big fan of of freight data because it's live. And I was just reading something today um, from the guys at Freightwaves.com, yeah. who They're I great. think are a go-to source of data. Um, that rates have just actually. You know, they were expecting that hoping that we were gonna get a spring liftoff as we normally do. And rates have actually just cracked to new lows again. And they do these things like the rejection rates, i.e., how many truck how many truckers are t- turning down contracts and hitting new lows as well. So we know freight is exceptionally weak. We know that inventories are extraordinarily high. So, for example, the, the inventory sales ratio for merchant wholesalers is was only, you know, let's exclude pandemic skewed data, whether you get these ludicrous spikes in activity, et cetera, was only higher in 2008. So, we've got a, a massive excess of inventory, which will have to be worked down. Um, but again, it, it just, um, when you look at those sort of ratios against inflation, they say, it points to much lower inflation. If you look at the, glo- the New York Fed's global supply um, index, um, that came out um, that's out this week. It's at a new low, um, and funnily enough, it's got a great correlation with Chinese PPI, which also came out today, which fell to minus. It's down three point six percent year on year, and China is the world's producer. So that's another side of things. So, so let's just say we do go into recession then the delinquencies start to to really kick in and then and the problem is then nobody has any money jamie Dimon may have got a a deal on first republic but don't don't think that you're going to get lots of other banks running to buy up assets of of banks that relate to difficulty so when you see the story in the ft today about blackstone um Offering to act as an intermediary between banks and insurers to try and shift loans, sell loans onto insurers. Insurers are just going to go, well, hang on. One, I don't really want to buy those loans. So, yes, long term, there's talk of us getting more stuff in private credit. But if I think we're on a recession and lending tightens are particularly tightened, and we know delinquencies are going to to be, be rising, then why on earth would I want to buy a loan unless it's very attractive? And two, if the bank wants to make it attractive enough to sell, he's going to have to take a big capital hit on the value of the loan in the first place. So it's it's sort of like an and getting Blackstone involved is I like, saying to someone earlier on today is like putting the fox in the in the hen house. Um, when you look at their own problems with their REITs and lots of their commercial properties. Um, so that's right, advantage. so I
0: want to ask people talk about the blackstone b REIT real estate um, investment trust where uh, people who want to withdraw their money there's a gate oh you can only withdraw x amount of x billion dollars per month that sounds bad and it is bad for the investors but for systemic st- stability it actually can be good because people can't call their money all at once right unlike a bank where people can and you have a disaster as we as we've seen you know, three times just just over the past few months so, I mean, I know it sounds a very cynical argument, but the investors are, you know, they've been tied to the mast, so to speak. And so they can, they can only withdraw so much. So Blackstone won't be forced to sell.
1: Yeah, that's all, right. that's all well and good. So what do they do if they need cash? They go and sell stuff they don't really want to sell, or well, they reduce their activity and they preserve their capital, which in turn reduces overall economic activity, which then makes the recession worse, and all their assets fall in value. Yeah. So I mean, it, you know, you don't get any greats. You know, when it comes to this sort of environment, ultimately it's every man for himself. Um, the collective, you know, there's no kumbaya spirit around. So I want to ask you this: Will more banks fail in the
0: U.S.? How many are the regional banks? What do you think is going to happen? Be, be- right, I think
1: yes, we will see some, um, but you know, their asset size is low. I mean the big the big banks are solid. My real concern is not um, is not so much the banks. I mean there there is a they are vitally important for a huge chunk of the U.S. economy. So you think about you know SMEs or the way that. The, Large companies, so generally the definition is is five hundred employees or less or a turnover of sort of less than of twenty five million or less. Those companies, you know companies which don't have access to financial work to the investment banking world, they they just live with you know they're dependent on their on their banks and and it is their regional banks. So if the regional banks are feeling pressured, as we see we see with the senior loan officers survey, well, you go along for a loan now. One, the bank's going to want more collateral or a higher level of. He's going to want more collateral or, or a a lower loan to value mortgage, whatever you know, low rating. Or a higher also rate, going to lower loan yield. And he's and and also one of the biggest. Right, one, one, while well, people say, "Oh, there wasn't that much change in the senior loan." Reality is, if if. 55% are saying yes we've got tighter conditions from the previous condition it's still very strong but on, what we saw particularly in the latest one was a very significant rise in the cost of credit to be charged so then you get go along and you think you're a businessman and you go okay we want to expand we're doing quite well we haven't got you know we need to borrow some money but then you go along to the bank and he goes well You know, I want the X, Y, and Z, and then you do your math, and it it just no longer makes sense from a business person. So you don't invest, and so that's in turn growth is reduced. So you, you know, it's just this gradual circle that just carries on.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement: Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up. And if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code guidance10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, So, Patrick, I I took, you know, as someone who's not an expert at all, I just looked at the senior loan officer survey, compared the numbers to 2007, 2008. And it seems like it's in, you know, maybe late 2007, early spring, winter 2008 levels, not the 2008, 2009 levels. It's important to say it is a, I don't know if it's a diffusion index, but they're asking people about a relative state of change. So, you know, if there's a seven foot tall man. And then you say the next data set is a six foot 11 man. You say, oh, he's shorter. So the data says, oh my God, the data says he's so short. No, he's, he's six foot 11. Likewise, we had a record credit boom in 2022. People say we had monetary deflation in 2022. They are wrong. Look at the chart of loans and leases in
1: 2022, off the charts. Yo, it, ah, uh, but yes. that's one of the problems. You see, that's one of the real problems about that. So one of the reasons that bank lending actually grew. Uh, in 2022, was because of the collapse of issuance in markets. So if you look at high-yield issuance, it's an absolute fraction of what it was. in, And also, a lot of the, you know, if you think about the mortgage market, a collapse in origination. I mean, origination, I think, in 2021, because of all the refi, et cetera, was, was roughly, I think, something of the order, if you look at Night Black, I think it was of the order of like $4 trillion. Of, of and then of actual new originations was probably about 1.6 or two but but then purchasing dies. So actually overall credit creation slowed dramatically, but for the banks, one, non-banks were no longer able to compete. so people had to go to the banks. Two rates gone up a lot. so so not only were rates higher, so they were able to make more of a profit. The bigger margin there, but also they were able to widen their spreads because the competition from the, the sort of the investment banking world, yes, the non bank world, had largely dissipated. A- and now, they, they what they to, paid
0: on deposits was still close to zero because rates were still
1: zero. Yeah. On the short end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were still flush with liquidity. The problem is that liquidity is uh, an ephemeral eff- concept. Mm. You know, it's there until it's not. And and, and just think about it, Um, you know, I often describe it is so people talk about reserves or narrow money versus broad money and all this sort of stuff. Um, The best way for it to look at it is it's like the oil in the engine of one's car. And the problem is, yeah, some of these banks did, they kept on driving down the highway doing 70 miles an hour or, or speeding a lot of them. Uh, and they forgot to check their oil levels. And so what happens, your engine blows up in the end. And that's a, I think it's a pretty accurate metaphor for some of the banks out there. And um, and now, of course, they're scrabbling for liquidity. So they're going to the Fed or they're trying to raise funds and they're having to take, you know, which are expensive. And they're basically locking in losses or reduced income. which also going to affect their earnings and their overall value. And they're just, and and as I said, We haven't even start to hit the the default cycle, the delinquency
0: cycle. Bank lending, that chart that we can show up, exploded in 2022 you made the excellent point that that's because other forms of capital raising in the capital markets, issuing bonds, convertible notes, raising equity, that froze in 2022. But I would make the same point. In 2020 and 2021, you had a record bubble in high yield debt issuance, investment grade issuance, IPOs, SPACs. So the huge contraction in 2022 was from a ridiculously bubblicious high itself, in the same way that the contraction
1: credit now is from a bubblicious level in 2022. Yeah, but what we're also seeing is an awful lot of that issuance. So we look at CLOs or the CMBSs that were done then, they're actually very short term. High yield debt is very short term. So already, you're now seeing people with CMBSs, and you're finding this, we're seeing that in commercial real estate, that they're coming to refi. And even, not only those, the Venados of this world with their mm-hmm. rate locks, and so the big property managers—they took, they, you know, there's not just issuance, but they took out rate locks. But being greedy, they just go, "Oh, we'll just take a three-year one," and now they're into to the rate lock, and they're they're absolutely they're, again they're in difficulty as well. So you've got so you've got a refinancing factor here. So I, you know, there's some real problems starting to kick off in in CLOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was reading an article yesterday about how. For once, you know people generally think that oh, high yield is more risky than CLOs. Well, actually, what we're seeing is CLOs doing worse than actual high yield. So, if you look at HYG, for example, right. Um, so there's, I and mean, there is this whole issue of the non-banks, and this is my, and I think people, you know, BIS, um, the Financial Stability Report, writes about it. But what we have seen since 2008, it is, it is an explosion in the assets put into the private equity stroke shadow banking world with higher bit models and we've also got this big problem and i think this is one of the things that um i said to a now retired fed president last october um um he said well if you think about it if you were 30 in 2008 and let's say you hadn't bought a property yet most you know And you're now 45. You've spent your your entire mature adult life in a low rate environment. You've perpetually conditioned yourself to having to spend a relatively low percentage of one's income to service one's debt. And now we just had the biggest monetary tightening globally. Probably actually, it's even great. So we can talk about high rates in the early 80s and stuff like that, but rates were perpetually high. uh, And so, If rates went from twelve to fifteen, yes, it was painful. And I remember having a mortgage in the UK in nineteen eighty nine, and it was fifteen percent. So, but a relative shift was minor. But here, you've gone from, you know, rates were at zero. Actually, the shadow Fed's funds rate, according to the San Fran Fed, was like minus one percent, and now the shadow Fed's funds rate is closer to seven. And the shadow
0: Fed that take what does that take into account? Just things that,
1: well, you know. It's it's more a question, of, yeah. It's a sort of well, it takes more allowance of spreads as well. So actually, okay. if you look at the shadow feds funds rate and overlay it versus the mortgage rate, it actually has a better fit. And we look at if you look at the spread of of between the thirty year mortgage rate or the average thirty year mortgage rate and the long bond, now it's wider than it was at the peak of the GFC. You know, 30 yeah. mortgage rates, what, 660, 670? And we've got a long bond at um, 373. So a 300 basis points differential. And that probably
0: has maybe something to do with quantitative tightening because the spread between MBS, mortgage-backed security spreads over Treasuries – that's effect, that's affected by quantitative easing, but no,
1: a little bit. But actually, Ish. because of the lack of activity and origination and refi, we're not getting actually much roll off. And actually, the bigger factor that actually makes RMBS actually, I personally uh, have been talking to clients for a long time, um, really for the part you know the since November, and then we had a big rally in it. But over now, if I was a fixed income portfolio manager, I'd be buying RMBS. Because I'm not too worried about you know the AAA agency. Or not worried about rates going higher, yeah. Um, but and also, but origination has collapsed. So the collapse in origination in MBS has had a far more bigger at, at impact than the actual any roll off by the Fed's balance sheet. Right, it's
0: true. It so it's CLO, you said earlier. That's collateralized loan obligation. CMBS, commercial mortgage backed security. VNO is a Vornado real estate investment trust. The VNO is the ticker. The stock has fallen. Uh, quite quite sharply, BIS, Bank for International Settlements, a central bank for central banks, although you know they I, I talked to someone who used to work at the BAS and he said, Central Bank for Central Bank sounds important, but really all we did is write
1: papers and have meetings. but, <laughs> but they do do great, they do do great papers, and this is yeah. another issue. They I do, do great talk papers. About. yeah I, I want to talk about so we're talking about the problems of overall liquidity, but there's a the global impact as well. So basically, there's this big argument, oh, look at the size of u s. money supply relative to from where it was. But well, actually, if you look at, against nominal GDP, it's now back to trend. So we've had this ever-rising trend of increased money supply with nominal GDP, and the percentage has got higher. So it's every year we need more debt money to support, to create a, a unit of nominal GDP growth. So it's back to trend now. But the reality is there's this argument about, you know, is it about the size or is it about the flow? and I'm much more of a flow man. So we now have US money supply nominal money supply falling properly for the first time since before World War II. Yeah. The last time that happened was 1937 and you ended up with a very nasty recession. So US money supply has fallen for the first time since before the World War II. Look at it from the perspective of all the economic research is done all by central banks. I mean, I, you know, I, I look at central banks, and you, you know, they're all doesn't matter if you work for the ECB or the Bank of England or the Fed. They're all the same. They have all got their masters in economics, gone and done their PhD. Most of them don't know how to change a change a plug or a tire. Uh, you know, and um, the, there's a sort of generic gene pool of them. And, and, and going back to this Fed president, I said, well. I you know, only worried about what about money supply? And he literally rolled his eyes at me as if it was like, Oh no, we don't talk about money supply anymore. No matter that the greatest Federal Reserve chairman in history in history, Paul Volcker, uh was a massive believer in it. It was like, oh no, forget Volcker. he didn't know what he's talking about. Right, okay, fine. Yeah, what have you done? Um and um so but I don't think I mean i I I I I struggle, I look around and I Try try and find a Fed paper that talks about falling money supply and the potential consequences of it. There isn't any because partly because they don't never consider it would happen, and secondly, uh, they've sort of dismissed, dismissed monetary economics. Um, so this is another problem, another concern I have is that you know, central banks don't have a playbook for this. Unless they go back to, oh, yes, it's print more money, but the political appetite for that is negligible. So we're in a, this is why I had a sort of concert theme that we're into the unknown here. And it's not just US money supply, it's UK money supply, it's European money supply. M1 in, in Europe is down 4% year on year. So obviously we only have 20 odd years history of, of Eurozone data, but it certainly doesn't smell right.
0: Yes, it does it, Pat, Patrick. Could you ex- explain in a you know, relatively simple way, as simply as you can, why the money supply is falling? It, so- it sounds, you know, the last time it happened was during the, the Great Depression. But it's you know now banks. It's not that banks are cutting off loan, making loans entirely. They're just you know, slowing loan growth. Does it does it have to do with quantitative tightening at all? Like why? Oh, absolutely, is, well, no, yeah, well, that's, that's a big
1: flat. factor because you just the money is just disappearing. You know, Fed issued reserves on the back. On, on, when it bought bonds, we're, we're cancelling bonds. I mean, what we're seeing, if you look at Europe, is actually that the ECB has reduced its balance sheet by a much greater stage than, than the, the Fed has. The ECBs, in a matter of months, basically locked 1.1 one, 1. 1 trillion euros. Right. But Patrick, that's,
0: uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, high-powered central bank money. When you talk about money supply contracting, I think you're talking about a form of bank deposits, which are the liabilities of commercial banks, not the liabilities of the Fed.
1: It's, all, it's all it all has an effect because you get excess reserves sitting on bank's balance sheets so that they have, you know, so that's on one side of the balance sheet. So you've got to have a, an offsetting, so that's a, a liability. So you need an offsetting asset, and as those liabilities fall, you reduce your assets. So we're that's one of the ways it, it just basically functions. Um but it's yeah, it's 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 it, There are other measures. So for example, um, Lacey Hunt is a big fan fan of other uh, ODL, other depository liabilities. Uh, ODL is collapsing at an unprecedented rate. It's absolutely collapsing. So if if those liabilities are collapsing on one side of a balance sheet, it's much harder for me to increase my assets. So I'm going to reduce the amount of lending I do. I'm going to just be more cautious. And, and this is the, some of the problems that we've seen. So when we look at the loan deposit ratios, the loan deposit ratios of small banks have absolutely leapt because deposits have gone down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Loans haven't really fallen yet. But we, people will talk about, oh, but loans are still growing. Well, that's a lagged effect because you think about it, you take a loan, you apply for a loan. You don't, you don't necessarily draw down on that instantaneously. I think we're only going to really see the, the effects on lending in the next, over the next three months, we'll start to see that effect come through. But overall, um, and then we look at foreign banks in the US, and their loan deposit ratio is now at a record high. So that's another, is that another area? Because foreign banks- bank- oh, sorry, sorry, Patrick, explain, explain what's going
0: on. You you So you've been tracking the foreign banks within the US and what they've been doing in terms of their liabilities, their assets is very strange. Explain in a very simple way what you've been noticing and
1: why it's significant. One of the issues is that the foreign banks of their $1.2 trillion of deposits, 60 odd percent, something like 760 billion of them, are what the Fed classifies as. Um, they're basically. Uh, yeah, um, other
0: assets. I got you. Um,
1: yeah, they're term deposits, large term deposits, which are all, Their definition is over $100,000. So basically, they're going to be more than $100,000. So those are largely. In uninsured. So if you're a corporate, you know, you're a corporate treasurer, you put, you know, you deal you have your international banking relationships. But at the same time, being a corporate treasurer, and I've seen what's happened to Credit Suisse, I've seen what's happened to smaller banks. There's 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 no upside for me keeping in a bank what I need apart from my immediate budgetary needs, let's say a months worth of expenditures. So just on a career risk policy, why not put my stuff in a, in a government money market fund and protect my liquidity? So you could end up, so we're keeping an eye on this one because initially the foreign banks didn't see any effect. So we had the problems in March with the domestic banks, but then foreign banks have only really started to see large deposit outflows in the past four or five weeks. If that continues. They may have to start going to the Fed or trying to raise liquidity elsewhere or try and get money from their parents Oh, as we look, at, and if you got, you know, if we look at what happened with Credit Suisse, credits, we saw the expansion in swap lines. And of course, the Fed doesn't say it's the SMB, but we all knew it was the Swiss National Bank yep. providing liquidity. So keep an eye out. Will, twi- will swap lines start to be tapped? That's another sort of tension. Then you that would lead off to strain, but has financial. Stability effects, but but you'll see credit spreads come under pressure. Cross-currency basis will come under pressure. Generally, that would actually strengthen the dollar. And also, we're at a time here where everyone's gone, oh, the Fed's going to pivot first, look at rates. Well, that's all in the price. We look at forward rates. So the painful thing now would be for the dollar to actually go stronger as well. Well, basically, if you think foreign banks are short of dollars, they may have to go to their parents to go to central banks to utilize swap lines to then lend them dollars. But they're also going to curtail their activities. But that can lead to strains in FX markets and broader risk assets. And then we've got other issues as well, which may exacerbate a dollar rally as what's going on in China as well. So if you notice in the recent FX rally or the dollar weakness, The one currency that hasn't really participated has been the the Chinese yuan. So if you look at euro, C and H, which is the main cross, that's right up at its highs. But that's also China's got deflation, certainly in producer prices, which is the only major price measure that counts the rest of the world because it is the provider of goods to the rest of the world. But also it's a massive competitor with the other major export country area, which is, of course, the eurozone.
0: Patrick, I just want to just clarify on the non-U.S. banks act, active within the U.S. on the liability side and the asset side. Okay, so on the liability side, they don't have a lot of retail depositors. They've issued wholesale uh, deposits, you know, CDs, certificates of, of deposits, as well as you know, uh, uh, deposits over a hundred thousand dollars. So that's on the liability yeah. side. So they're the most vulnerable. On the asset side, who are they making the loans to? You said there, it's a lot of commercial loans.
1: Uh, yeah, they'll be basically providing financing to 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 corporates. Um, it's not. It's it's as I said. It's, it's if you look at their about fifty fifth, almost half of their loan work is is CNI. However, more recently, they've also over the past year or two two years, they've increased lending to what's called classified as other other. Um, not non-depository non financial institutions so that could be a hedge fund it could be a private equity fund it will take it it, it takes money probably often money much of that is actually um, used for leverage and then there's another area which is basically other unclassified lending which is also sword so we don't you know it's not we know it's not cni and we know it's not towards residential or, or or commercial real estate, it's just a great blob. Got it. Is- okay. So,
0: Patrick, thanks. Now, let's move on to, you called the European Central Bank hike of 2008 an economic war crime, and you said that the ongoing rate hikes from the Federal Reserve or the ECB were the same thing. Why are they an economic war crime to hike interest rates during a bank recession?
1: Mm-hmm. During a bank bank turmoil. Well, one, the of credit is already diminishing. Two, um, central bankers are always telling us that the lags of monetary policy are long. So if you get about one bad inflation months inflation data, given it's been everything's now turning south, um that's gonna, you know, it has no 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 effect whatsoever. It's just a mean it's it's like a meaningless gesture. Oh yes, look at us, we're being credible. But we've already put so much tightening in the system, both in, in rates and in terms of QT and, and tighter credit conditions, that sometimes, you know, it's like baking a cake. You, you know, you don't turn the oven up to speed the cooking of the cake. Otherwise you'll burn it. Or Tereo used it, uh, Milton Freeman's phrase, about, you know, the shower's not warm enough. Because you're waiting for the water to come through, and you end up scalding yourself, because you increase, you know, and it's very much that. So we are at a time for patience, and I would actually argue that, um, you know, sticky inflation, some of these things have made them possibly over tighten, whereas um, they surely should have just been clearer in their messaging, which has always been a problem. Um, but actually saying, well, you know, know, we've done a hell of a lot and it's time to just, and I think we are at that point now. Um, But, I mean, in 2008, we could see what was going on in the world. We'd already had loads of bankruptcies and banks failing. Um, Got worse, obviously, when Lehman went down and then the UK banking system went down as a whole. (laughs) But, um, you know, you had this knee-jerk reaction from the ECB because the oil price was at $140 in the middle of 08. So headline inflation was out there. It doesn't matter that money growth had been declining significantly for well over a year. The M1 in Europe was down to 0%. And the monetary conditions were already very tight. So it was just like a, 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 it was like a, a futile a World War I, let's go over the top. And you've got trench no warfare. chance of getting across no man's land.
0: It's a pretty grim analogy. Is, it, are we, is that a, a grim analogy apply here as well?
1: I think, well, put it this way, if the Fed hadn't done what it's done, um, we would not have been seeing the, the pain that we've seen in banks. The problem is we've obviously seen a huge amount of change post-pandemic. Um, with you know, there's there's been a shift in the efficiency of the office spaces. Also, there's there's broader there's been big trends behind that. A pre-pandemic, people were still wanting to move to more green, energy efficient buildings. So you know, you just go to Manhattan and you see these big old 50s, 60s, 30 blocks that they just can't do anything with. They actually probably some of them actually haven't because you can't convert them to residential on a cost effective basis they actually have a negative you actually once you actually sort of add in the demolition costs they'll probably have a negative value so they just sit there vacant i think there's a big one on sort of broadway at the top of it it's near central park and it's just they can't give it away so that comes to all these other loan books so people say oh yes u.s banks their loan books are Solid, uh, well managed, you know, but some of this stuff—the the shift in valuations we've seen—are enormous. So there's the Class the Union Bank, their headquarters in San Fran, twenty nineteen. Just bought by US it? Bank, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I have my own concerns about US Bank, um, and even the other ones. I mean, so why is it? So City, I, I think I saw it on Twitter today, City are paying. Like zero point one on an instant deposit account, an instant access account. And PNC is paying four and three quarters. So why is the sixth largest bank in the US having to pay four and three quarters? Um, and um, but that's that's another story. But the Union Bank building, so they own it. It was well maintained. You could depreciate it was valued at 300 billion, I think, and it's just sold for like around 65, sorry, 300 million. It's just sold for 65, and that is not a distressed seller. That's not a bank in possession when banks, and this is the other thing, banks, in, when banks start receiving stuff, they are not, from a regulatory perspective, they're not allowed to become long-term landlords. So they have to get this stuff off their balance sheet. So they just they provisioned on loans. They may lose some more money, but basically they they, they just so put they it would in be talk.
0: a distressed seller. Whereas this bank, uh, uh, U- Union Bank, owned the building, which was just bought by U.S. Bank. What are your concerns on U.S. Bank? I've you know, Warren Buffett has owned it. Bank analysts I've talked to think very highly of it, uh, at least historically. Per- perhaps not now. Yeah, you mean but the same bank analysts
1: who all had FRC and SVB on, on their buy recommendation lists until they didn't. You know. Okay, but
0: Warren Buffett didn't own First Republic. I mean, the, the return on equity of US Bank is a reason. I mean, it trades at a, it used to trade at a higher book uh, price-to-book value than JP Morgan. Still looks, it still looks expensive. Bad. to.
1: I mean, I don't really do stocks, so I try and avoid But basically, a common feature amongst all the bu- banks that have gone bust is how rapidly their equity capital relative to their assets has declined over the past two years. And so you, that is and almost then,
0: entirely because of interest rate risk, not credit
1: risk, correct? Well, no, because they, one, they expanded their assets. And, well, not boosting bolstering
0: their equity. What, what bank has failed because their loan book went bad? I would say none so far. I'm not saying it won't happen, but correct? Yeah,
1: they just ran out of, they ran out of liquidity. They ran out of you know, their model, you know, borrow short, to lend long. But, but also there's, there is this element about well, how much capital is in the bank? So how much how much reserve do they have? What how trust you know how solid are they? And um, a common feature amongst all the banks that have gone bust has been the, the, and it, and it's the, the fact is it's the it's the rapid decline in those ratios over the past three years. So you can look, I've I've tweeted about them in the past, put them up, and you can look at the ones, a lot of the ones that are under pressure now, so PacWest, Comerica, or whatever, have very low low equity to capital ratios. They're sort of around about 6%. So um, do they actually, if you take their losses and all the other stuff, do, do they actually have any capital left? and then you go well if they, if they if the net position is their capital less then they shouldn't be running it as a bank otherwise they go and raise capital and improve solidify their balance sheet and take a hit on their returns you know I mean, there there are two ways you can run a bank treasury book and if you're working in a, you know obviously you want to maximize the income at the same time you always have to have an eye on prudence and your and your regulatory liquidity obligations, and and that comes obviously at the cost of reduced returns. Certainly in that area, and unfortunately, my perception is that too too many banks have focused on using the treasury operations or the as the banking operations as a profit centre, and have failed to spend enough attention looking on the, as. How a bank treasury operates as a liquidity center.
0: Right. So you have the common equity tier ratio. They said it was 12. It turns out it's actually six because all of these risk, uh, you know, low risk assets such as agency
1: mortgage backed securities. Well, no, it's just, because, well, a large part of it is down because their asset base has expanded so much over the past few years. So right. right. And those for- asset bases
0: that they bought are now worth less in the market. So they have, right?
1: Yeah. Or, 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 oh, no, I, I, think- I, I, see,
0: I see what you're saying. Okay.
1: It's yes. just basically, yeah. what? How much? How much? How much gas does a bank have it have, it have in its tank? Yeah, and and the problem is, as we've seen, um, you know, another the, in this digital age, which was the other thing that Powell fessed up to, was, oh, well, now that fact that everyone's got a smartphone, which they didn't have in two thousand and eight. And most banks weren't, didn't, you couldn't bank online in 2008. Yeah, you'd have to drive now, to the bank, wait, it's a hassle.
0: Why not just go take a nap instead of doing it? But now you can just do it from your, from your, yeah, uh, you just go click nap. Yeah, So, Patrick, you're absolutely right that, yeah, banks swelled in size, particularly Silicon Valley Bank. I think they close to tripled their, their asset base. Uh, and that should appear as a higher leverage ratio. But they were buying all these assets, agency mortgage-backed securities that had a risk weighting of 20%. So it didn't appear in what they were reporting uh, as much. And maybe, you know, agency mortgage-backed securities, maybe they should have a higher risk weighting. You know, I, There's a bank analyst and investor I respect a lot who has a quote something to the effect of, show me the risk weighting, show me the low risk weighting, and I'll show you where the asset problems are. Because, you know, in Basel II, I think, you know, banks could have AAA subprime mortgage-backed securities at a low risk weighting. Now you can have agency mortgage-backed securities at a low risk weighting, and the credit risk is you know, infinitesimally small, but the, the interest rate risk is huge.
1: Well, I, I think that's, a, that's a, that would actually the question I would raise is actually that bank regulators probably pro- focused far too much on the credit quality and yes. not enough on the interest rate risk. So I, interest rate yeah. risk should have a higher weighting when it comes to measuring banks' um, position as a whole. As I couldn't agree, agree more. more if and, you were know, going to rate a bank.
0: The talking heads on all the channels were saying banks are doing great. Great Banks do well when it, r- interest rates go up. And it's like, yes, but not when they interest rates go up 500 basis points in a year and they make all the loans when, when interest rates are are super low. Yeah. Uh, but Patrick, so if, intre- if, you know, the Fed has stopped hiking, which I, you know, pretty likely that they have, the problems going forward can't be interest rate risk, right? Because so they have to be uh credit credit risk. So if if the credit risk gets serious the, the problems continue but you know this whole problem of oh the, the fed's you know the fed's not going to hike from 500 basis
1: points to 1000 basis points right so yeah yeah so who's got the credit risk well it's not really the banks and so the banks have a certain amount of credit risk but overall it's not the banks that have the credit credit risk the people who have the credit risk really are private equity private credit and investors because investors for so long have gone, oh let's have alternative assets so ultimately it it negatively impacts um, everybody because if they've if they've got a pension um, it may impact you know we saw what happened with uh, the guilt market um, although that was a brief hiatus of you just look back at it and it's like Liz of 44 days um, and, um, you know, the simple chaos that was quickly resolved. But it, it was also you know, one of the things that exacerbated was the excessive amount of le- leverage that liability managers had in the system because rates stayed so low and volatility has been so low. They thought, oh, we can double up. So we'll we'll sort of double the size of position and be leveraged to get that extra return until it didn't work. And the the real problem is it's so this could end up being more like a 2000-2001 recession where it effectively becomes a balance sheet recession. So households as a whole, their levels of debt are not high. It's relative compared to where they were in 2007. They're much lower relative to income. The the real problem is actually businesses. So we look at, um, you know, was not it the federal government who massively expanded its debt during COVID, et cetera? It's the US business sector. We can see that data when we get the quarterly flow of funds data. So we now have a business sector in the US or corporate debt is roughly business debt is somewhere like 75% of GDP. It's pretty much all time record highs because the whole model was Oh, debt is cheap. Let's go and do buybacks. Let's we'll pay ourselves and all this sort of stuff. Well, debt isn't cheap now.
0: So, and you think that the duration of those borrowings was short enough for it to be a near-term problem? Because that, you know, didn't you know Amazon issued forty-year bonds? It's it's the problem of the people who lent the money because. You know, interest rates are not at zero anymore.
1: It's not. You know, I think we have. You know, when we talk about you know whatever you want to call them, the fangs. They they are utilities. They have loads of cash. So that's another. That also leads to another problem when you hear Powell and Co. Say, oh, there's lots of cash in U.S. corporates. Well, actually, if you take out the top 20 people, like Apple, like Oracle, like Microsoft, actually that that level of cash is is much much lower, right? And then, and so, it's a misleading. It's a misleading um, approach. Um, so, corporate America is leveraged as a whole. It's leveraged like it never has been before. But when what happens when we enter times of lower growth is we generally see deleverage. So debt goes back. So we get income. Actually, we'll pay down the debt. We're not going to do buybacks. So I, I, mean, I don't profess to be, I'm a rates man by heart, yes. by DNA. But overall, it, it just says that, well, the buyback buybacks for many are going to cease to be a function. If credit spreads get wider and we need more liquidity, we're going to conserve our capital. But it also means investment gets curtailed and you can enable certain sectors with the inflation reduction Act and all the subsidies might do okay. But is that going to be enough to offset everything else? Got it. Uh, so I don't believe it will be.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, Blockworks Research might be a good fit for you. Blockworks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Right. So, Patrick, you said you're a rates man. Where, at the end of this cycle, where are rates headed, the terminal rate? When the the Federal Reserve, you know, it probably will cut. I don't think it will cut in the next, you know, three, six months. It could. The market thinks it could. But where will the bottom in rates be? You know, in 2008, the bottom was zero. In 2020, the bottom was zero. What's the bottom this time? And how soon do you think the Fed gets there?
1: Well, (laughs) how quickly they will ease yeah it might take a little bit of time but when they do start to ease let's not forget we went up in chunks of 75 it wouldn't surprise me to see a, you know in one in sometime just go well oh, hey we've done all this we could do a 100 basis points cut just in one fell swoop none of this oh, 025 a quarter nonsense because if you go up a lot you can come down a lot where do i see rates eventually settling around probably sub 2 As inflation eventually edges back down, you know, it comes down to our star and what credit spreads like and how thick, how you know, I think there's a general, maybe even down to one. I mean, we thought about where do we get to um, back in 2002, we got to one. Okay. 9-11 pushed it down, but sort of one and a half to two range. I can quite happily see. I I can see that without any difficulty.
0: Got it, Patrick. So you're a rates man. I want to ask you a question. You know, there, are, there are where the level of rates are now, the forward rates, but there's also the options pricing and you can, you know, do a lot of complex structures on that. What do you think the odds are of further Fed hikes? And would it be a profitable strategy to sort of sell tail risk uh, of further, you know, s- sell sell the risk at the Fed doesn't get to 6%? Well, you're you're probably, this would be the, the worst I'm, trade I'm, of 2022 would be selling tail risk at the Fed hikes higher. But now it seems like at the end of the cycle, you know, the bond market is often wrong, but it's, you know, right now at this time, late in the cycle, it's probably not wrong. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I mean, don't never ask me for price and option. I'm I'm much more of a Luddite. I mean, I'm quite simple. So I've been, You're not a Luddite. you know, I so sort of more I'm recently, Luddite. I've switched to being a sort of when I talk about trading rates and stuff like that, I've been using the five-year note more as my benchmark rather than tens or bonds. But I do look at various global markets and I sort of say, well, Hey, I can get a 20 year treasury, which the other day was back up at above 4%. I'll take that. I'm and actually, but, you know, I don't trade these days, but I do manage my own sort of, what well, we call it a SIP over here, but 401k in your terms. Right, and you have
0: some of the largest macro hedge funds in the world who we won't name, but who are, I, I can assure the audience, are the,
1: the pristine blue chip hedge funds in the world. Yeah. So, but I've been buying for my own. Person pension, you know, 30 year gilts, which were still about four percent. I was, you know, U.S. Treasuries while back when we rates were higher pre the banks, and I'm still quite comfortable with that. Um, From a tech training perspective, um, even though the Fed's just hiked to five, and we've got a five year note down at, it's been as low as three thirty today, or sub three thirty again um the pain for me from a short-term trading perspective would be for a market to have like a flash crash another bank goes bust something like that there's a liquidity issue dollar spikes f- what's going to happen there and then you end up with a, a sort of um a sort of a bit of a mini minsky moment for one of my description and at which point i am happy to walk away um We basically it's been a bit boring really for the past six weeks because we had the big spike down rates have largely been in a range, so you've had your sort of juice. But further out, I just look. I look at the little very simple chart of Chinese PPI against the US ten-year note going back twenty years, and it's like what I call a jaws chart. So you end up with like it's like that. So I'm trying to get it on the screen. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I mean. It's just it is jaws. It's like that. Rates up here, Chinese PPI down there. Which one's going to catch up? Well, maybe a bit of compression between the two. But it just says to me that, you know, I was chatting to a friend of mine today on, on Bloomberg, and I'm saying, you know, sub three, I wouldn't be really surprised to see rates in the short term break 3%, which point I'll be out, you know, I'll be down the pub. <laughs> be like, thank you. Right, so at what point do you think those jaws
0: Snapshot and take, you know, many investors and the global economy with it. And let's specifically go into China, where you know you follow China very closely. In terms of the uh, Chinese reopening, which was legit, and you know the the uh, you know Chinese citizens are spending more money. The the PMIs were going up for a time, but it sounds like you are very doubtful of the Chinese recovery at all. Let alone will it you know be a ballast for the global economy. Tell, tell us why. Well.
1: I was a bit sceptic about you know, the euphoria that um, was going around late last year about China and the speed that it was going to recover. And, oh, it was going to be a boost to global inflation. Well, uh, yeah, well, that's worked out really well, hasn't it? Overall, I suppose I'm more balanced now because market was overexcited. China's disappointed. I think China will probably continue to chug along. But even on today's credit data, the property market woes, this is a permanent millstone. It's not going to go away. And down the line, construction, residential real estate construction, is going to be much, much lower going forward. You've got problems about external demand. As I said, exports have been softening. Good demand has been softening. And China is primarily a provider of goods. So we've got record inventories in the US, and you just have to look at freight rates across the Pacific, the collapse in container arrivals, not just on the West Coast, but also now in, over in New York and New York and ports of New Jersey and other ports. So and one of the things I mean, I you know, I worked in Asia, I worked for a big bank. One of the things that the street as a whole is appalling about is China. Generally, there's a pravda approach to research. You, never, you were never allowed to say anything bad.
0: A pravda, like Russian government propaganda. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. censorship. Don't say anything bad about China. Or what? You, you know. get fired. You don't get promoted. You won't get a good enough bonus. Yeah, you could get fired if you if you didn't you know said the wrong thing. So the people um, who get the
0: big bonus are the people who say China, the sky's the limit, fifteen percent GDP growth. Stocks, so another a
1: previous call. Uh, it was like in July of 2021. I was writing about Ever I started writing about Evergrand because I knew a lot more about it. I follow China, you know, I know quite a few people over there. And the buyer of, of first republic, when the Ever- Evergrande bonds were at 80 cents on the dollar, was saying buy Evergrande. And yeah, right. Okay. So the in, bonds are in- now pennies. Yeah. Um and um you know they get into China, and of course last year you get to the point where Chinese equities dump, and then they go. China is Chinese equities are uninvestable, and then the next day they're up twenty percent. So I mean, what it, but there's a general problem about China, and it goes all the way back to really about 2013, 2014. And uh, I came up with this phrase. I call it the Stalinization of Chairman Xi. So as power has been increasingly concentrated. Um, whereas, obviously, there used to be these various different rivalries, all people around doing lots of stuff. Um, as power has been concentrated in the G, there has uh, been a creeping paralysis. You know, I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. So, therefore, it, it causes an inactivity. But we've also seen, for no demographic reason, but since 2016, or when he G, starts to get his coming up to his get his second term. We saw the birth and marriage rate start to fall off a cliff long before COVID. It's like a real dent to people's confidence and it's still going on. So we're seeing, you know, household loans actually fell in April. Um, Savings deposits continue to rise. There is demand for things. So we have a a nice active New Year. But actually people were doing a lot of it was low budget spending as well. So they're not, they're not buying as much expensive stuff. They're also not traveling abroad. And even if you look at Macau, so everyone goes, oh, look at Macau, it's reopening. Well, Macau re- revenues are still only roughly two thirds of what they were in 2019. So it's stabilizing, it's getting slightly better, but it's hard to say, oh, this is a dynamic Chinese recovery. All um, right,
0: Patrick. Uh, isn't it? I've seen a few charts. You correct me if I'm wrong. That Chinese savings of consumers, yo, know, Chinese nationals, not not businesses, not governments, but savings. How much money is in the bank account are very high. In the same yeah. way that in April 2020, May 2020, in the U.S., the economy was was in the tank and spending was very low, but savings was super super high, and that was a fuel. Different base, Two different beasts.
1: I mean, as you know, I mean, you know, Michael, you know, so I'll give you a new plug because if any, everybody should go and listen to your recent podcast with Michael Pettis, who knows far more about China than me. But this defensive mechanism, if you don't have a support network, and actually, the COVID experience has made Chinese citizens even more sceptical about the ability of the state to look after them. So therefore, they're saving even more because they simply don't trust the state. And that a—I a, think that's a really important thing. So you're seeing banks cutting their deposit rates. So if you look at Chinese bond yields, they've collect, they've, they've, they're down. They've, they've fallen very sharply over the past three or four months. And okay, they're where they were in November. But overall, interest rates in China are going low. So the second largest economy in the world is easing monetary policy. In the second largest economy in the world. In fact, when we look at it, the Chinese PPI, how it leads US PPI or global PPI, China is generally leads the world. So if you think about what's going on in China, it's probably not a bad idea for times when it comes to market pricing and inflation for the rest of the world in sort of nine to 12 months' time.
0: Right. But isn't it accurate to say China is emerging from a recession and Europe and America are entering into a recession? So the timing is- Well, little-
1: China's, Well, I don't think China really had a recession. It's more like China will just bumble along, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be a massive contributor to global demand. Got it. Which is what everyone was hoping. Got it. Well, Patrick, so, so if we, uh,
0: to close this interview, could you sum up your views on global growth, uh, where bond yields are headed, and where where
1: stocks are headed? Just- I'm, I say I'm not an equity man, so I, I'm I'm very defensive in any equity investments I have. I'm buying solid companies with good balance sheets and sort of utility type businesses or even some banks, not not US, not necessarily in the US, but some of the US banks. I think some of them are relatively cheap, not the USBs of this world. Um, I think bond yields are going lower. How quickly, how soon? But as I said, I'll take four percent on a long dated treasury or, or gilt And uh I think the, the um Dollar liquidity is going to get much worse. We, we, you know, maybe it'll be August when we get one of those classic spirals. But then, um, uh, you know, I think we we'll see a stronger dollar, which in turn weighs on risk assets, and then we, everything. You know, so it could be. I think sell the old sell in May and go away and come back on Saint Ledger's Day i.e. in September is probably not going to be a bad analogy this year. There we go. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. As people can see on Twitter,
0: you are at PPG Macro, a uh, you know, chronically underfollowed account, as is the case for you know, many legitimate people in finance who spend you know, a lot more time about markets and, and uh, you know, working with the best investors of in the world rather than sort of tweeting all the time, which is, which is what I do. If people want to get in touch and learn more about your work, where can they, they find you, Patrick?
1: Well, probably the best place to start is on Twitter. DM me or something like that. And then we can, rather than plugging up my email box and then we can progress from there. Yeah, there
0: we go. Yeah, when we put the screenshot up from your email in October, I I blocked out your email address to, you know, keep it. Thank you. That's great. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks so much for keeping it. Cheers. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.